listening to a message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. If you'd like to know more about Red or its ministries, please go to redchurch.org.au. We are here in lockdown 2.0. How has it been going for you? Um, as I've been talking to others and even just listening to myself, because I live alone, um, it feels different. There was something potentially novel and restful about the first round of lockdowns. And then we had the ray of hope of everything being okay. And now what we're experiencing is real and apprehension is real and the anxiety is real. And I'm not wanting to turn that up necessarily as I am wanting to validate it. And just to say that if we as God's people are feeling this, imagine what it means not to know him to not have a story bigger than this, to not have a hope to draw upon or a God to pray to. Um, That is the story of my neighbours' lives and it is the story of people who you work with and is the story um, of our communities. And whether we know it or not, but it's the church that is going to lead the time at this hour, whether the world knows it or not, society is led by the church. And where it's been possible that society has led us, There's now time for us to be the church. And so today I'm going to stand. I usually sit, um, but this is a moment for standing and not sitting. And I want to share with you um, an important passage I've had in my heart since the fires in, in January. And this series is going to be called Called by His Name. It is based on a powerful promise, Old Testament promise, that God gave the nation of Israel back when he first built the temple. And it says this, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. We have an if. My people, the people who are his, Call out to him, pray, seek his face. He will then. We have an if and we have a then. Now, the context of this promise was written over two and a half thousand years ago when Solomon was dedicating the temple back to God. Now, this temple was extraordinary and of unfathomable significance to the Jewish people. But it was more than a building, it was more than a temple. This passage and this temple is actually predominantly about the presence of God being on the earth. God's presence is like the chief goal of our scriptures, of our narrative. It is the heartbeat of the Christian message. And what had happened in this time is God had named and called a people out and wanted to fill them with his presence. Why? Because he hated being torn apart from the earth. He hated the fall and the curse of sin and death. And he has been seeking us. He's been seeking his people ever since. And right now in the time frame we're in, he's on pursuit of his people and he's knocking at our doors again. But this wasn't just any building. This was the presence of God himself. It didn't just represent his presence. It was his presence. His presence was in that building. And when David designed it, Solomon built it, he didn't just dream it up one night and go, this is a nice design. The design of the temple, the fullness of where God's presence would dwell on earth is the exact replica of what we see of Jesus' throne room 
in Revelation chapter 4. I want you to get that. That Jesus' throne room in heaven, he wanted a version of on earth because he wanted to be with his people. And where Revelation helps us understand the present in light of our future, Chronicles, the history books, help us understand the present because of our history. And the hope of our past and the hope of our future actually invites us into a really divine moment that we're entering in, already have entered in, in this time and place, not just as read, but as church or the world over. And you'll see that history is an attempt of God wanting to be back with the people and the people not wanting to be back with God. He is always the initiator and the pursuer and we are the ones that instead of wanting to be called by this name, like the name of the world and the name of the nations. But it begins when he calls the people out, calls them out of slavery to the nations, Egypt at that time, and he gives them his own name. And this is what we have, if my people called by my name. And this is what he says to them in Deuteronomy chapter 7 when he sets up an unbreakable covenant with them. He says, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other people, for you were fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors. This was a plan he'd had going on for a couple of centuries now, a plan he had executed as soon as he was ripped from people and people were ripped from him. And he gives this promise to Abraham, who passes it on to Jacob. Jacob then becomes Israel. The nation develops. God calls them out and then he gives them promises. And the key to who they are and the key to their identity is that they are called by his name, not by anyone else's name. And they were to be marked with his presence, and they would bring his presence to the world. Now what we see throughout history is what I hinted at before. Instead of them bringing his presence to the world, the world brought the presence of the darkness to them, and history is this interplay of light and darkness, and God passionate to be with his people to the point of greatest cost, sending Jesus Christ himself. And we are now this side of history the other side of Jesus, but waiting for the fullness of his presence to come, as Revelations tells us in Revelation 21, when he, the whole earth, becomes the temple. But in this time, in Chronicles, chronology, him sharing the steps to the history, he is saying sometimes stuff's going to suck and hardship's going to come, but if my people called by my name will seek me, humble themselves, turn, return, I will listen and, and then I will heal their land. Names are really important. I don't know what your name is or whether you've understood the significance of your name. Eugene Peterson would say what your name is isn't as significant as the fact you have a name. Names are more than a title. They denote existence, purpose, and identity. I remember uh, just a couple of years ago, well, four or five years ago, I was racked with horrible abdominal difficulties and nothing would fix it. I had horrible nausea, reflux, and indigestion all at one time. 
and I would give it an 8 out of 10 in discomfort. Nothing would take it away and the doctors couldn't do anything. Uh, confession, I don't have private health insurance. It's not a plug. It's just a fact. And that meant that I had to go on a six-month waiting list to get seen by the specialist. Now, that can be okay. That's annoying anyway for anybody. But when you're racked with discomfort and pain, a six-month waiting list is not the news you want to hear. Now, I'm from Ballarat and I'm from a family of Deutsches. And I have the surname Deutscher. By no choice of my own, that is the name that I have. And in Ballarat, my uncle happens to be a surgeon and is relatively well known in the medical field in Ballarat. And so when the gastroenterologist heard that it was a Sarah Deutscher that needed to be seen and he made a phone call to her, I got instant access. Purely grace purely because I had that name. I had a favour I didn't deserve. I got provision I didn't deserve. And I got answers that I didn't deserve because I had the right name. And that's just a surgeon in Ballarat. You are called by the name of the King of Kings and of the Lord of Lords. He has hosts of angel armies around him. And not only are you called by that name, but it means your identity is his. And it means that you have provision and you have promise and you have inheritance. That all Jesus has, as Peter says to us, we have all access to his precious promises. And he gets to decide in what timing he chooses to execute things. But I believe with all that I am that he is positioning us as his people to activate a number of his promises and this one from 2 Chronicles 7 is one of them. Now, I'd never read the verse or the passage that comes before that one. Turns out a lot of verses don't stand in isolation and nor does that one. And then when the coronavirus hit in March, I discovered the preceding verse, verse 13, which says this, When I shut up the heavens so there is no rain, or command locusts to devour the land, or I send epidemics among the people. Okay, not sure if that passage packs a punch for you, um, but just as a reminder, Australia has just endured the worst drought in all of history. It got to the point where it wasn't just the worst drought, but it got to the point where they were measuring the drought by measures of degrees and percentages of how bad this drought was. The fires that we endured in January weren't just summer loving, not just things that happen because it happens to be hot. They were the direct result of a parched and dry and weary land. Not sure if you're familiar, but we've also had an unprecedented um, plague of locusts hit the east coast of Africa, um, around the Arabian Peninsula and over India. Tens of billions of locusts devouring crops and of course, as is the news of 2020, we have an epidemic. I had read in other versions, either pestilence um, or deadly disease. This is epidemic. Dry up the clouds, send locusts to devour the crops and send an epidemic amongst the people. I'm not sure how much more explicit our God needs to be to get our attention. I don't know, maybe he needs to arouse rumours of a cheeky China and various acts of mischief. 
Maybe an economy needs to be pulled out from underneath us. Maybe other things that we can rely on and assume as given be taken away. I'm not saying that he causes this. I don't actually know. I'm not going to pretend to know the mind of God. I do know that he's not concerned or worried. I know that he's got a plan. But what he is saying in this passage is that when this happens, as if to say it will, because we live this side of the fullness of heaven and this side of Eden, he knows there are going to be times of direct hardship. When this happens, if my people, then I will turn. What will he do? He'll give them his presence. And what does his presence do? His presence brings abundance. It brings healing. It brings flourishing. It brings Eden back to that place. And so part of what we are experiencing is the direct result of years of decline where a culture and a world has turned its back on God and chosen his absence over his presence. And part of what judgment is this side of the cross is us just living in the consequences of human choice and behaviour. But I believe there is an aspect of this which is an act of his grace, and I know that can sound cruel, but it's not. Hear me out. Because he wants to do something and he's positioning not just his people but the earth to receive his presence. Now we see this cycle break out in Judges 2. It didn't just happen in Chronicles. He says when this happens, and it happened multiple times. He echoes this in Deuteronomy 28, and then we see it in real time in Judges 2. And basically the story of history is this cycle of ups and downs and ups and downs. You may have heard us talk about this before, where God comes with his presence in fullness. When there's presence, there's abundance, there's blessing, there's provision, and there's favor. There's social healing, emotional healing, physical healing. And he moves. And then over time, it usually only takes two or three generations, the people forget. And with the forgetting, there is then a decline. And with a decline, there is then a crisis. Because remember, his absence means he's not present. And if he's not present, then only the things he can bring are gone and with beyond reach. People then cry out. God, who is gracious and compassionate and full of loving kindness, who wants to be with his people, intervenes. The people then return to him and we have peace and abundance again and the cycle continues and then people forget and then there's a decline, there's a crisis. Where are we now? I guess I've just highlighted it to us. We are in crisis. If you've heard me talk about this cycle before, Mark speaks about it also, you will have heard us talk about it in terms of decline. Now, that decline hasn't happened over nowhere. It's happened, uh, depending who you listen to, but anything between the last 150 years to really most likely the last 500 years, and that it's hit the bottom. And I knew that we weren't yet ready to be on our knees because we weren't desperate enough, but I'm wondering if we're now at the beginning point to realise we're not in Kansas anymore. At this moment is real, that the things we could have anchors on and rely on all of a sudden prove like vapour and are taken away from us. And he is saying, when this happens, if my people call by my name, then I will do this. And so my thing to you or my excitement in giving this message to you today is that number one, first and foremost, this is a time and a window of time, a kairos time, where his divine purpose, purposes and intentions match a certain time frame. 
for you to know whose you are. Not just who you are, but whose you are. A child of the living God, the King of Kings, who has all the provision and all the promise and whose inheritance is your inheritance and that you live out of that place of hope and of courage. I think we can take the identity piece. A lot of you have been feeling him calling you for some time and a lot of us are in a situation now where other things have been calling us and they're not working anymore and the Lord has silenced that stuff and he's knocking on the door asking to come in and be with us and us with him. But can God change a nation in a day? Which Isaiah asks his people. I don't know that we believe it. I think we believe that God can change individual lives and I think we believe that God can change churches. He turned up palpably in 2016 in our church and it was an incredible rich time. But can he, can he change whole nations? Is he big enough to actually turn this crazy pandemic around? I wonder if we believe, but we don't really believe. Olive Sayers was praying with Terry, her mum. Olive is five. And then her mum, Terry, said, what, what is it that Jesus talks to you about? Just trying to teach her to hear the voice of God. Olivia, five years old, said, people believe, but they don't really believe. Out of the mouths of babes, we have a definition of our condition. We've lost belief. We have a scent. But do we believe to the point that it shapes our perspective? mobilizes us and shapes our behavior. A second point for us as we start to realize whose we are is that it is time to remember. I think it's difficult potentially for us to believe because we have grown up, majority of us, if not all of us, in the most, boomers onwards, the most peaceful and prosperous time in world history. That's all we've known, so we don't know anything else. But as things start to shake, we realise what it means not to be able to rely on those things that we took for granted or assumed would always be there. And because we've been marked by this prosperity that comes with that stuff like entitlement, just assumption, we haven't been marked by those stories where God has had to pull through. And I want to encourage you that there may be times that you can remember where in your individual life he has proven true. There may be words that he has spoken to you that you can remember and you can draw upon as a source of hope. There may be times in our church, as I hinted at, 2016 was an incredibly rich time where for a period of three months the presence of God dwelt amongst us. So let's remember that. But I wonder if the, the level of belief required at this moment, we, we actually need to draw upon other people's memories. And so we've got the memory of, of Israel and God even said to Israel, remember when I did this, remember when I intervened, remember when I split the sea, remember when I turned those enemies against you, remember when I came with an outstretched arm and I pulled you up and I freed you. We get those stories. But maybe we need some stories in our lifetime where this God, God of the angel armies, he has the hosts of heaven at his bidding. Hears his people's cry 
and comes and intervenes and turns dark situations into light. I want to talk to you about Almalinga. Almalinga is a little town of just 20,000 people in Guatemala. And Almalinga in the 80s was very much marked by poverty, uh, violence um, and alcoholism. Alcoholism was the, the chief um, issue in that place. And you would wake up and walk through Almalinga and there would be people to your left and right that were just asleep um, getting over their, their night of binge drinking. There were way too many bars. There were four jails in a tiny town of 20,000 because there was so much violence because of the alcohol. And there was rife poverty. And this was a city, or a little town, really, that was teetering on the edge. And there were pastors in Elmalinga that were doing their best to cut through with the gospel to no effect. It was like water off a duck's back. They'd say they would speak and it would just dissolve instantly. And pastors, as they often are in countries like this, were persecuted. And one night, um, a pastor, Mariano Risca Jashe, I hope I've got his name right, he's a brother, he was taken by one of the gang leaders and a, and a gun was put down his throat. And as he went to shoot the gun, um, Mariano cried out to God and the gun shot a blank and he was able to run away and escape. But he knew that that was one of those moments where his life was going to change and it woke him up and he realised that they weren't going to get anywhere, let alone have a chance of, of life, without actually finding out what was going on in this town. So he started a small prayer gathering. It was just a few people. And they decided to go after the alcoholism, the alcoholism, the violence and the poverty. And they would fast three to four days and they would hold prayer vigils on Saturdays. And in doing so, they realised that the alcoholism wasn't the problem, the poverty wasn't the problem, and the violence wasn't the problem, but that we live in a spiritual world and there were strongholds behind these things. And so they did what's called a spiritual map, and they mapped out spiritually what was going on over that territory and over that land and discovered a bunch of idolatry, a bunch of witchcraft, and all these rituals that were going on. So they prayed against them. In the privacy of their own space, they gathered and they opened their mouths to the living God and over time those idols fell, those strongholds fell and the presence of God came to Almalinga. The presence of God came to Almalinga and it healed people spiritually and physically. And after a couple of years of this gospel changing lives and the more lives were transformed, the more people wanted to hear and the more People got transformed. It got to the point where in the, the late 80s into the early 90s, 80% of Almalinga were professing, active, born-again Christians. When God's presence comes, it doesn't just heal us spiritually, it doesn't just heal us emotionally or physically as there were testimonies in that space. He heals everything and everything goes back to its order. And they found that their agricultural practices changed because of the wisdom that they were receiving, but also because of their work ethic and because God was putting a blessing on the land. He doesn't want to just bless us for our spiritual belief. He wants to bless the entirety of his creation. And so where they used to send four trucks per month of average produce, the favour of God the turnaround of the people and then partnering with him resulted into 40 truckloads per week of not average produce but of abundant produce. 
They have got such flavor on their produce. Their carrots are huge. Their capsicums are huge. Their um, cauliflowers are huge. You may have seen this. It's in the transformation videos that came out in the 2000s. But the quality of all of this was so good. Scientists were coming from America to work out what was going on, what methods were they using to get such fertile produce, fertile land to produce such abundant produce, and they couldn't define the answer. And Almolinga to this day is called America's Vegetable Garden. This is a town that was blanketed in darkness where a gospel wasn't cutting through and where people who chose to live out their identity as children of God, to humble themselves and to seek his face and to repent and turn against idols. And he came and he healed their land. Mariana says this, it wasn't theological preparation. It was us throwing ourselves to the Lord. And he says, is our God and the gospel truly power enough to impact, powerful enough to impact the community? The question I asked us before. And he says, our answer is yes. God decided at that time with the people's faith, with what he had planned and purpose for Almalinga, he was going to intersect with their faith and his purposes and his presence came to town. My second story is about Uganda. Uganda, once known as the Pearl of Africa, has a complicated history of horrible atrocity. This was the place where Idi Amin himself lived. Idi Amin, if you're not familiar with him, was known as the Butcher of Africa and under his rule alone over a million people were massacred. The epicentre of his massacres were Uganda and evil, corruption, violence and poverty was matched with his absolute acts of evil. Pastors really struggled. Pastors, again, similar to Mariano, weren't able to penetrate this with the gospel and the gospel would just disappear as they tried to activate the message of the gospel. The light was being quelled by darkness. Now, next to this atrocity, uh, Uganda was then badly hit with the AIDS epidemic in the late 80s and the World Health Organization predicted that by 1997, one third of Ugandans will be dead by the AIDS epidemic and the AIDS virus. The pastors were then persecuted in 1984 under Idi Amin's rule and the various complicating factors at that time, pastors were sought after. They were put in prisons, they were put in prisons um, where 60 people in three by three metre cells would starve to death and people would die and they weren't able to fall anywhere because they were all stuck upright. And so this is a city that is marked by the stench of death, literally and spiritually. And people began to pray. But it was incredibly dangerous to pray because of persecution I just told you about. So they would hide out in the swamps during the day. And then at night they would come out into the forest and they would pray. And these weren't just normal prayers. These were groaning prayers. And as they groaned and as they prayed, they were able to see, and it was revealed to intercessors, a spiritual map of things that were going on in Uganda and they realised that the root of it, it was like a whole covenant had been made with Satan himself in that land and he held dominion. Thus the death, the evil, the corruption, the poverty and, and the violence. And so they started to pray into these strongholds. And then a particular pastor came to Kampala, Robert Cardanya, 
And he came and he was accompanied with six intercessors. I mean, you see this man, he is just full of belief and hope and full of the Holy Spirit. And he knows the battle he's fighting in. And so he brings six intercessors with him. And as soon as he comes, the witch doctors go out in force. One goes to kill him, but he is saved. Robert is is saved and that witch doctor dies the next night. Unexplicable causes. And his congregation, it starts off with seven and within two weeks it becomes um, 2,000 people. And it is now a church of 10,000 people. And that church itself has planted 600 churches. And so they gather and they cry out and they pray. And politically things start to turn around, strongholds start to lessen, the economy starts to improve, the crime rate drops by 50%, which is huge in a country like Uganda. I think it's huge anyway, but particularly in a country like Uganda. But the World Health Organization, which predicted that one-third of Ugandans would be dead by 1997 because of AIDS, the graph went like this. And the epidemic was turned around partly because of renewed morals, partly because of renewed um, wisdom that came with that. So sexual behaviour wasn't happening as it was. But there were also healings of people that had HIV positive and were now negative. And this wasn't just any vain belief. This is a belief that cried and groaned day and night. And this is people who went to risk to cry out in the name of the living God. This is the people that decided that this was not going to be where, where Uganda had been a place where God had gone to sleep. That's what the rumour was. God has gone to sleep. Where is the God that is preached about? Where is the God of power and answered prayer? And these were people who decided that was not going to be the conclusion and that was not going to be the fate of their land and they did something about it. If, then. The turn of the millennium. Tens of thousands of people gathered into an auditorium in Uganda and the Prime Minister was there, the First Lady was there and a covenant was read out, signed by the Prime Minister himself and the First Lady and Uganda was dedicated back to God. This is what the covenant said. We renounce idolatry, witchcraft and Satanism in our land. We are conscious that we have put other gods before you, Lord, and we have worshipped them. And we turn from this and we now covenant our nation, Uganda, to the purposes of God and the lordship of Jesus Christ. How did this happen? People cried out to God. People unified. People prayed. People fasted. And a God who hears from heaven and wants to answer these prayers turns and heals their land if then. This beautiful man in the story is full of the Holy Spirit. You see the Holy Spirit oozing out of his very face. And he said it was the most exciting thing. We divided up the cities into regions and into zones and we sent out prayer teams amongst all the different regions and zones. The churches around the city united to do this. And he said it was as if you could hear, it was like the sound of bees buzzing were the prayers of the people throughout the night. But in the thickest of physical darkness and spiritual darkness, this aroma and this buzzing of people's prayers went up to the king and the king heard them and their king turned and healed their land. And so as I end our first part in this series, 
if there was ever a time for us to heed this invitation, as I said before, I don't know what else would have to happen. It is time to seek the Lord. Ah, here I go. We're not in Kansas anymore. No one has the answers. Our governments, our politicians, even Q&A and the expert panels they have up there. Russia, America, the great empires are falling apart as the earth is shaking. We don't have the answers. He has all the answers. There is so much provision for what he wants to give his people. So may we let God be God. And may we be his people. As this few weeks goes on and we listen to what the Holy Spirit wants to do in how we're to do this, we don't want to do it in out of religious duty or vanity. We do want to be having a greater heart for worship as Cherry has shared with us. We want to gather together and pray more in the hidden places ourselves, but also corporately as best we can with the tools we have available to us. We want to unify. We want to break strongholds. We want to humble ourselves and we want to seek his face. And so Jesus, we, we stand here as your people having belief and wanting more belief. We stand here as your people wanting to be awoken to what it is you're wanting to do amongst us in this era, this being the battle of our era. Jesus, we ask and pray in the words of Habakkuk that we have heard of your fame and we know of your deeds. Would you renew them in our time? And so I ask and I pray for those who are struggling and those who are feeling the despair, the hope and the promise of that is you would come upon them afresh and that you would give them a renewed perspective. I pray for those who are in direct hardship and direct struggle that are needing your intervention immediately, I ask and pray for provision. But I ask and pray for your church, not just in Melbourne. I ask and pray for her all around Australia and all around the world, that you would truly wake her up, that you would truly rouse her, that you would win our hearts, that we would be your people that you would be our God and that you would do an outpouring on this land and turn this darkness into extravagant light in the power of your wonderful name. Amen.